Good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. My name is Chris. Glad to have you here with us today in God's house. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Hebrews 13. But before we look at the sermon text today, I want to celebrate uh, the fact that over the last number of months, we have been uh, interviewing and working so hard behind the scenes to hire an executive pastor. And we extended a job um, offer and it was accepted. Uh, Nate Smith is going to be joining our staff in mid-October as our executive pastor. Uh, and this is a major answer to prayer for us. Um, Nate is a wonderful man. Uh, many of you may know that on the north side, one of our church plants, the pastor uh, Trip Prince, when he stepped back early in the pandemic from leadership, Nate uh, stepped into the interim role um, while being a deputy director at the CDC. Uh, Nate is, um, was the director of public health in Arkansas many years ago. And prior to that, he and his wife, Kim, and their kids lived in Kenya uh, for a long number of years doing HIV ministry uh, as a physician. Um, Nate is one of those guys that I think is really, really good at processes. Um, he, he's actually a, a doctor and a scientist, and he's also ordained in the Anglican Church and will be preaching occasionally. The most important thing Nate's going to do is he's going to, uh, sometimes our staff, it's like herding cats. Um, just think about that for a minute, like what that would feel like. Nate's going to be aligning us, I think, around some really important ministry strategic initiatives um, staff processes, as well as helping us do our mission, execute our mission and vision for you all in a way that I think is going to be good. We, we have had historically lots of magnets and not a lot of Velcro. Uh, so people who are always creating things, events, but we need more stickiness in terms of our uh, processes. And Nate's going to just do an amazing job. So he and Kim are on the uh, north side um, today saying goodbye to friends. They've been a part of that congregation for a long time. And he's going to be with us um, here before too long and starting work in um, in October because he's actually leading the national um, like monkeypox initiative. Uh, so there you go. I mean, just, you know, doing things like that. Uh, so he can't be with us for a couple of months in terms of vocation, but you'll see he and Kim around the church and just say hey to him. He's a great, great guy. He owns lots of suits that he's going to have to just sort of get rid of. So I feel bummed for him. Um, his closet's probably... Um, yeah, his closet's going to just hold lots of suits, I think, because I don't think you'll see him around here wearing suits all that much. Um, let's read Hebrews 13. Paul says, let mutual love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing that, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those who are in prison as though you were in prison with them. Those who are being tortured as though you yourselves were being tortured let marriage be held in honor by all, and let the marriage bed be kept undefiled. For God will judge fornicators and adulterers. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can anyone do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Through him, then, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that confess his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. That, this is a good one to say thanks for. Father, we ask you to help us 
today to hear you, Lord. Holy Spirit, that we would hear your words through our brother Paul. We pray, God, that this letter written 2,000 years ago, God would land in our hearts and our lives and our ears in ways that would help us think about our own relationships and how we show up in relationship. Have mercy, we pray, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all, this is all about relationships. So what I want to encourage you to do today is to think less abstractly and more concretely. Paul, I think in the wisdom of God, invites us to consider a number of relational spheres. And we're just going to walk through those things and, and, and touch the text and see what the Holy Spirit would say and how he would speak to us. But I want to encourage you to think about how you show up in relationship. And we all have lots of relational spaces. And Paul's going to touch on like strangers and um, hurting people and marriage and money and leadership. He's going to touch on some different areas. And I just want to encourage you to be as honest as you can about how you see yourself showing up in relational spaces and what the Lord may be wanting you to do. Before we get into those, the first thing I think we're meant to see in this text, the first movement is Paul says, let mutual love continue. Um, it's really important to define love, I think. I think increasingly, sadly, love is, um, we've lost the definition. I think we've, we've, love is more about what we feel in our day and age. Uh, my parents who are watching online, hey, mom and dad, um, they, they, when they were married, said um, in their vows, uh, cleverly, as long as love shall last. <laughs> and what they meant as hippies was like, we're going to do this till we don't want to do it anymore. Uh, thankfully, they've done it. They've stuck in there. They actually renewed their vows where they kind of like said, that was probably a bad idea to just say, we're going to do this until we don't want to do it. But what they meant and what the culture typically means when we think of love is like a feeling we have. But love, classically, was understood as desiring the good of another. And so what Paul is saying here is that we are called to desire the good of another and to be in relationships where someone's also doing that for us. There's a mutuality. Let mutual love continue. There's a reciprocity around real love. If love for you is primarily about taking or getting it's probably not a fully orbed understanding of love. I was once in a seminary class where a, a professor who's now dead, gone to be with the Lord, said, to be fully human, we need to see and be seen. We need to hear and be heard. And we need to help and be helped. Seeing being seen, hearing being heard, help and be helped. It's like three coins, two sides of each coin. There's a reciprocity. Many of us are comfortable seeing, hearing, and helping. As a default, that's my comfort zone. Do you know why? Because it puts me in control. You can be really helpful to other people and not really let them in. Maybe others of us are more comfortable being on the receiving side of, of being seen, being heard, being helped. And what we see when we pick one side or the other as a default is that we're missing the idea of mutual love. What God wants us to do is to be the kinds of people who give and receive. So I want you to think about your life as we're going to look at these various components of relationship that St. Paul invites us to see. I want you to think about how is and how are you doing in the area of the give and take of love? Are you desiring the good of others and allowing others to desire the good of you? If we live in real, authentic, loving relationships, we're not just going to have warm, fuzzy feelings all the time. 
We're not just going to be affirmed all the time. Um, Sometimes I would say always in real loving relationships, desiring the good is both affirmation and challenge. It's, It's giving those things, but also being willing to receive those things. So Paul says, let mutual love continue. It's my conviction that as we move increasingly into post-Christendom, spaces where it's not a given that people are followers of Jesus, and that is the moment in which we are living, and it's only going further down that road, that the idea of mutual love is going to be a way that Christians could and should and will be known. So it's time for us to think about our lives. Let mutual love continue. A giving and receiving. So think about how you show up on those uh, ends of the continuum and maybe see the invitation of God uh, for you. The, the next thing that I think we're meant to see here is this idea of love towards strangers. Um, oh, good. At the first service, I left this off, and so they skipped to the next one. It was my fault, uh, but they, they, they fixed it because I'm not great at detail sometimes. So uh, love of strangers. So I love what Paul says here. He says, like, some of you have, like, actually hung out with angels, and you didn't even know it, which is such a, a cool and inspiring way of saying, like, look up and engage people that you don't know. Um, be welcoming. Now, for many of us, the idea of just inviting perfect strangers into our home like seems weird. In ancient Near Eastern Semitic culture, not as weird. Uh, for us, like, I, I'm not gonna encourage you to like, go to Willie's after lunch and say, you wanna come home with me? Like, don't do that. that, that would, you could get hurt. It will probably be super weird if you did that. So how can we show love? How can we desire the good of strangers? I believe that one way we do it is to begin to cultivate curiosity, to look up and begin to see that we have a gift to bring to the world around us in Jesus' name. It means eye contact and words. It means um, not just being lost in your own world, looking at the ground or looking at your phone. This is actually, I think, a really, really low-hanging fruit way of learning to recognize that you can be useful to God in the world around you. Do you know that people are desperately lonely right now? Many of us come into this space feeling more disconnected than we have at any other time. Um, The people you engage in coffee shops and restaurants, even inside this building, many of them are struggling. Many of us are struggling with a sense of pervasive loneliness. Um, Do you know that I sit with people as a pastor, and so do we on our staff, that are not engaged and seen and touched in redemptive and appropriate ways, sometimes for years on end, we live as a a fractured and isolated people increasingly. You have, as an ambassador of reconciliation, as an image bearer child of God, a Christian, an opportunity to look out and see people who otherwise would not be seen. And you never know who you're dealing with. You never know what their story is and how you can make a difference. This last week, I was in Colorado uh, working with church planters. It was a super inspiring and encouraging couple of days. One of the jobs that I do for our diocese, which is the gathering of about 60 churches in our Anglican uh, denomination, is coach and mentor and help deploy church planters. Um, it's actually what I'm really excited about spending the sort of second half, God willing, of my life doing is coaching, mentoring, and sending out new church works. And I was with church plant leaders all over the country. 
and made, made some new friends. It was awesome. And one of those new friends, his name is Jim, and he lives in New York City. So he's like a New Yorker, like a real one. And I said to Jim halfway through, I was like, people are so friendly here. And Jim's like, no, like, Chris, you're friendly, and then people are friendly back. And I will say, like, there are a lot of things I'm not really good at, but this idea of loving strangers, like, I love to love strangers. It's like a gift. I, I love to do it. Um, and he said, basically, like, you look people in the face, and you say things to them, and then they look you back in the face, and they say things back, and then something happens. And I was like, that's true. Something happens. I want to encourage you to be the kind of person that looks up from your phone and your life and begins to see people around you. You get to be Jesus to people you don't know. And y'all, it's actually one of the easiest. It, I would argue, based on what I'm about to tell you, this is the easiest one. Just be human and make eye contact and speak to people, you will be shocked at the level of connection that can happen with perfect strangers in coffee shops, on Marta buses, in your office. You can be the hands and feet of Jesus, extend hospitality, desire the good of people you don't know. Look, word, don't touch people a lot, a little weird, but you can start with, with eye contact and words. The second thing Paul says, the second group, is he calls us to love those who are hurting and suffering. Now, the image that he uses uh, are, are people who are incarcerated. And I just want to say, it's not not prison ministry. Like, I think prison ministry is actually really important. Some of my most meaningful formative experiences as a Christian uh, involved engaging people in prison ministry. Uh, I once did alpha an alpha course in England in, in jail, and um, it was one of the most powerful things I've ever done. It's amazing to sit with prisoners. Uh, I once had a Scottish guy, I think maybe confess wild things to me. I couldn't understand a word he was saying. Like Scottish people on TV, you can understand them. Scottish people in real life, it's hard. And he was crying and he was saying things. And I'm going like, Jesus, I think you know what he's saying. I, you're doing something clearly that has nothing to do with me other than being there. But one of the things that doing prison ministry taught me was that I need to learn how to be present to people who are hurting and living less than free like in my daily life. Like the people that you want to move away from at work or in your neighborhood, maybe at church. You know the parable of the prodigal son? I mean, the parable of the Good Samaritan, where the good guys were like moving on the other side of the road because they had somewhere to go. And there was one guy that nobody expected who moved toward the, the hurt. There's something about the animating heart of Jesus and the kingdom that should move us to move toward people who are hurting. Not as saviors, but as just people who want to be in the spaces where God shows up. Leslie Newbegin, one of my favorite missiologists, fancy word like missionary, he said God calls Christians to engage in costly identification. I just love that phrase, costly identification. Brian Stevenson talks about proximity, being near where the stuff is because that's where God shows up. If your life is not a little messy, it's probably not the full life that God wants you to have. If your life 
is clearly delineated, lots of easy boundaries. It's not tough or distracting or at times even uh, challenging. It's probably less than the life God wants you to have. And so in this text, Paul is calling the family of God. He's saying, I want you to move toward people who are less than free because God will show up in that space if you're willing to show up in that space. And I just think there's a really important invitation for us to think about our lives, to think about the way we view efficiency in life. Because this stuff, like moving toward strangers, it costs you something, not, not tons, because you're probably not going to invite them into your home. Moving toward the hurting, that costs you more. It's like a way of realizing we're family, we're in something. He's saying, if they're tortured, then you would be as if you were tortured. You're allowing yourself to feel alongside people. And I believe that there's something here uh, for us because we are living, I think, in an era where we are buying the lie of scarcity maybe more than ever before, that we have a scarcity regarding like how much time we have, how much energy. Scarcity is not just about money, y'all. Scarcity is like what happens when you don't think you have enough to encounter need outside yourself. Like scarcity is what drove, you know, the feeding of the 5,000, that story? There was like one kid who brought food. Do you honestly think out of 5,000 people, just one person brought food? No, all the adults hid their food. And it was just one kid was dumb enough to share. Many of you have learned to hide your food. And I'm not just talking about your food food. I'm talking about your time, your energy, your love, your ability to move toward people. We've just started to hide it because we thought like, hey, there's not enough for me and you. So I'm just going to keep mine. And one of the things that St. Paul is saying, and candidly, it's the Holy Spirit through him, is to say, what would happen if your life and the provider of your life, you knew that he was more than enough? You would probably start to live more like this versus like this. So where are we living in scarcity? And how might God invite us to open up our hands and move toward? It starts with strangers, but then it moves into like, in the vineyard, we used to say back in the old days in my church, like there are just people around you who, are, who require extra measures of grace. They're just tough. There are also needs in your neighborhood, at your job. Maybe it's a person sitting near you in church. Like what does it look like to say, I'm going to be inefficient in the way I engage because my God is more than enough. He has more than I need so I can share. And that actually has to bear out in your relationships or it doesn't mean as much. If it's just abstracted, it doesn't mean as much. Paul then moves straight from prisoners to marriage. <laughs> it gets a little weird here, I'm not gonna lie. Um, but I think what Paul's trying to say is like now we're moving into more intimate space. And he says, marriage is a place where love has to show up. And I want to say a few things about marriage because the text is calling us to. One of the things I love is that Paul, a single guy, speaks now to marriage with honor and with integrity. He says, actually, let marriage be held in honor by all. Why do you think he would say that? Because people who do this marriage thing are doing a hard thing. 
Uh, it needs to be honored and esteemed because it is hard. Marriage is where we are most vulnerable, and it is also where our shadows show up the most. You can behave yourself at arm's length, right? Like with the person in the cubicle next to you. It is hard to fake it or to be aspirational over 25 years in a marriage. Who you are actually begins to show up, whether you want that reality to show up or not. So marriage, when we try to do it while desiring the good of another, not the whole, as long as love shall last. Sorry, mom and dad, you changed. I'm so thankful. It's a good example. It's a preacher, though, I have to say. When we move through that to desiring the good of another, that work, which we do imperfectly throughout our lives, those of you who are married, is noble work and it should be honored. I honor you if you are trying to desire the good of the person next to you. I honor the hard work. God honors it. Paul says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. Okay, PG-13 for the next 50, 10 minutes, because the text says so. So parents, it's not going to be rated R, PG-13. It'll probably be over your kids' heads. If not, you'll have fascinating conversations on the way back uh, to, to, to lunch um, today. So I'm, I'm happy for that, um, and I'm sorry at the same time. Um, Paul's not speaking about sexual techniques or like, I don't think things that are on, on limits and out of limits when he says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. Uh, what he's actually saying, I think, is that this marriage thing and the undefiling of a marriage bed has more to do with protecting the most intimate relationship from a human perspective that those of you who are married have been given the privilege to steward. We are as humans wired to desire intimacy, whether we ever marry or not. Uh, humans are, from the time we are born, uh, wired for intimacy. Um, it is a fascinating thing. You should grab a pediatrician. I see one over there in the room. Um, you can see it from birth on. Like babies are wired to find the face of a mother. It's an amazing thing. I was just in Colorado, like I said, with a guy named Kurt Thompson who just blew my mind. Kurt Thompson, man, this guy, he's got something to say to the church. He's a medical doctor, a, a um, like brain thing uh, guy, really smart. And he loves Jesus a lot. And he talks about things that I think are really important. Here's what he said to us. He said that from birth, we are hardwired to be seen. Babies search for the face of a mother and to be soothed, to be comforted and soothed. We are wired to be safe and to desire safety, which ultimately results in a security that can make us confident to engage a foreign and strange world around us. This idea of being seen and soothed and safe and secure, it's hardwired into everyone. And we seek it first in our infancy. And then those of us who are able to be married, we also seek that process of formation in our most intimate relationship within marriage. Intimate loving in marriage is an adult's most valiant effort at experiencing that progression of being seen and soothed and safe and secure. As an image bearer of God, you are drawn to sexual intimacy because you desire to be seen and connected. What our world has done is turned it into a tool for self-gratification. Our world is actually, this is why pornography is so insidious because what pornography has done is taken the, the very desire that was meant to draw you out of yourself to other people and it's privatized it. Do you see how demonic that is? 
Like one of the reasons, and I think as I sit with people, one of the ways that I have seen men and women get free from pornography is not just trying to manage an impulse or a behavior, but to begin to catch a vision for the fact that your sex drive is meant to draw you outside yourself and pornography, the demonic characteristic of pornography outside of the human trafficking and the subjugation and the marring of image bearers that we see happen in the sex industry is that you are now privatizing something that is meant inherently to move you toward communal connection. Do you see how that is such a bait and switch? It like robs us of what we're meant to be. You're meant to be the kind of people whose drive moves you out of yourself, not in yourself. So Paul says, let it not be defiled. And then he names two ways. There are others, I just named one, where it's defiled. Fornication, which is being single, unmarried, and having sex. And adultery, which is being married, and having sex with somebody who's not your spouse. So fornication is a shortcut to that intimacy. It's like saying that's a whole lot of work and it's really hard and it's really fraught. So I'm just gonna go do it over here. It's the shortcut that God is saying is not my best for you. It's not how we actually desire the good of ourselves and other people when we shortcut. And then in adultery, It's where we do what often is done. And I'm just going to tell you, like, if you're about to get married, you're going to be fundamentally disappointing and you're going to be disappointed in your marriage. It's just what happens. You get close enough and you're like, well, dang, this is not what I thought it was going to be. This is this person kind of sucks. (laughs) Trust me, you do too. And so what happens is that we get in and then we think, well, this isn't what I thought. And so we go looking for option B. C, D, E, F, G. And we think it's just that I haven't found the soulmate. It's just that I haven't found the perfect thing. Do you see how those are the things that move us out of desiring the good of ourselves and others within marriage? Sex is not an inalienable right. It's a gift when we're put in a space where a man and a woman come together in marriage and are able to express something deeply intimate. Now we live in a world where increasingly smart and progressive culture says, it just, this stuff is just antiquated. This is where the church is just, you know, God's some kind of a killjoy. Sex is just a biological thing. Um, it doesn't really matter. We need to get past some of these like ancient restraints and the church is just, whoa, way out of step. Sex is not that big of a deal. Let me just tell you this, when someone you love is having it with someone else, it's a big deal. It wounds us. And my most heathen friends that wanna say sex doesn't really matter, as soon as someone they love is having it with someone else, it matters. Because sex does matter. It is not a tool for gratification so much as a tool to move us outside ourselves in truly desiring the good of another. And do you see how fornication and adultery, they shortcut, they circumvent that process. Now, if you are a person who has experienced fornication and adultery, I just wanna say there is a way forward for you. But that way forward begins by admitting and acknowledging I've gone down paths where there's not ultimate life and I need to actually say, what does it mean for me to receive healing and restoration in my own soul? Without tending to the pain of that which we have done, we never really feel clear and clean 
in our relationships. And I just want to say we are here to challenge you and walk alongside you as you seek to be the kind of men and women that God has called you to be. It's intimate stuff. And then Paul says love and money. Seems like a disconnect, but it's not. Because we turn to money for the same reasons we turn to sex. Because we want a shortcut to feeling better. We think that enough money will make us feel seen and soothed and safe and secure. And I'm just going to say the Beatles, they were right. Money can't buy you love. It can't make you feel what you think it'll feel. And so what Paul says here is I want you to practice contentment. And I just want to say in the arena of sex and money, um, the best thing we can do is acknowledge where we are and begin to practice contentment. If you're not having enough money or enough of the other thing, the first step is to say, God, how can I, how might I be okay? How might I view myself as a whole person who is experiencing perceived lack in my life? Practicing contentment is so important. Because if we place that on money, a weight on money or on sexual intimacy, if we place a weight that it cannot ultimately fundamentally bear, we will see the line break and we will feel disillusioned and unmoored. God is asking us to step back and say, what does it look like for me to acknowledge where I am and begin to ask God to meet me in where I am? We have to practice contentment. Before you can be content, you have to acknowledge your boundaries, your limitations, even the ones that hurt and frustrate and make us feel sad. But God will meet us if we will do it. I love that Paul says here, the Lord is my helper and I will not be afraid. Do you know it's fear that drives us to place inordinate weight on things that can never satisfy us? It's a fear that we won't have enough. It's that same, I'm going to hide it versus hold it out here. Next, Paul says love in the context of leaders. He's just moving right down the line. I believe that leadership and spiritual authority matter a great deal to God. Uh, Richard Rohr, who I do not uh, subscribe to when it comes to like some of his Christology, I do, however, really love some of what he says about relationships. Richard Rohr says we have increasingly uh, live in a sibling society and we've rejected the notion of mothers and fathers and we're kind of left in a purely peer society. I think he's right about that. I think there's a problem with that. Our mothers and fathers are actually really important in the faith. Um, and I would just say to you that your leaders are not perfect, but uh, because no one's perfect except for the Lord. And yet God has given you mentors and leadership voices in your life for a reason. He wants us to be the kinds of people that look at the ultimate outcome of people's lives and then follow them as they follow Jesus. I'm so blessed in my life to have some mentors that I look to and try to emulate the way that they engage the Lord, the world, and relationships. And you need that too. I believe that the Lord asks us to um, recognize our own brokenness and our own shadow and then begin to lean into what it means to be wounded healers. Over the last year and a half, I feel like the Lord has um, helped me see the wounds in my life, the places of pain, and then move toward Jesus anyway. And I just want to say to you, follow me as I follow Jesus. I want you to have people in your life 
um, to whom you can look and say they're further down the road than me. We all have those people and we need to be more unapologetic about telling them that. Nancy Verpreskis was in the last service sitting like right where you in the flower dress was sitting. So I'm like looking at you and I'm thinking about her because she was there at the last one. She's a spiritual mom to me. She's a mentor in my life and I, I honor her. I revere her in a really appropriate and healthy way. My bishop, I honor him. I submit to him. I joyfully follow him. My own parents have a role of leadership in my life still to this day, and I honor them. We need to have people for whom we um, see them as being people who are leading us somewhere. If you're in charge of the whole thing, God help you. It's lonely to be the best at everything. Don't be that person. There's better. Finally, Paul says, do good and share. Maybe the best way to hear that is the kid at the feeding of the 5,000. Don't hide your stuff. Just put your stuff out. Get outside yourself. That's what relationship is all about, getting outside yourself. So here's the question for reflection that we're going to look at. Where is God inviting you to move beyond yourself as you seek to grow in love? I believe that there's a level of intention required to move beyond self. And it may for you be about your marriage. It may be about some difficult relationships. It could be about money. I don't know what it's about for you. I know what it's about for me. So what we're going to do is spend a couple of moments before we come to communion, just being still before God and asking him, where are you inviting me to take intentional, intentional focus around where you're inviting me to move? I guarantee you he's inviting every one of us to move in some arena or arenas. So we're going to spend two minutes quiet to start a process that I hope you'll carry with you through the week where you ask the question, where am I being invited to move? And then we'll come to communion together. But let's be still first. We're able to stand together.